You may be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jonah. I was only able to fit the first chapter of Jonah in your handout, so you'll definitely need to open the Pew Bible. I believe it's around page 774 or so. Over these three weeks, we'll be looking at the four-chapter book of Jonah. This week, we've jammed together chapter 1 and 2, and it is an amazing book. Every week we preach from the Bible, we believe that it's the Word of God with, our, with the strongest conviction possible that we believe that God has spoken truly and authoritatively in this book, the Bible. And so, as we devote our time and attention to study and to learn what it says, and we want to pass that message on to you, we come to the book of Jonah, and there's a bit of a struggle, I think. It's an amazing story. Now, if you came up to me off the street and said, my cousin the other day spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, don't you think I have a right to be skeptical of that? Don't you think I would be a little concerned that you may not be telling the truth and your story may not be entirely true? Well, people over the, de- over the centuries have start- struggled with the book of Jonah because the story is amazing. In fact, we're told by Wikipedia that most so-called scholars, the consensus of mainstream biblical scholars, hold that the contents of the book of Jonah are entirely ahistorical. While the book of Jonah itself is considered fiction, Jonah himself may have been a historical prophet. He's briefly mentioned in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Kings 14.25. Most scholars believe, this again according to Wikipedia, that the anonymous anonymous. The anonymous author of the book of Jonah may have seized upon the obscure prophet from 2 Kings and used him as the basis for the fictional character of Jonah, but some have contended that the figure of Jonah himself is entirely legendary. Fact or fiction? When we come to this book, it's really tough to understand how this amazing thing could happen. A guy can survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Here's why I, why I believe this is entirely factually true. Jesus settles it for me. He should sell us for, settle it for us. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said to the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. From the words of Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus, we understand that Jesus believed that Jonah was a real historical person who preached to a real historical people, historical group of people in Nineveh. They repented. That's a spoiler alert, I guess, for chapter 3. Secondly, Jesus believed that Jonah was literally in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights because he compares it to the fact that he would spend three days and three nights in the grave before his resurrection. We believe that God can raise the Son of God, Son of Man, from the dead. Certainly we can believe that God could keep this prophet alive for three days and three nights. So Jesus and the veracity that he brings to this account 
encourages us to take this account seriously. Follow along as I read Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each one cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account the evil has, this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prophet and his story, for his life, for his ministry. Lord, the lessons that we can learn for our life. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your grace that is so amazing and so marvelous when we deserve your wrath and judgment. Lord, I pray that you would transform our thinking by your word. May your spirit attend your words so that we come to understand and then also have the power to carry out your will as we learn it in your word. Lord, help us as we study this morning to not go away from this place unchanged. Change us by your power in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think of this prophecy and the story of the prophet Jonah as a bit of a twist on the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, in God's providence, I'm going to be preaching on that tonight in Lee Summit. And in this twist on the prodigal son story, if you can imagine Jonah as the older brother. In this version, God the Father 
sends out the older brother to rescue the wicked younger brother. But he can't handle that. It blows his mind that his father would extend grace to this brother, and he goes on the run instead. It's as if God was saying to Jonah, Jonah, take the message of my lavish grace grace for unrepentant sinners to your worst enemy. I know they don't deserve it, but you didn't deserve it either. I know your painful past with these wicked people who have persecuted you and killed my people, but you should know Israel was my beloved people before it was your people. And they became my people not because they deserved it, but I showed them grace, grace to people who hated me. Let me remind you that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of my own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you by out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jonah hears this commission to go, but he doesn't. He can't stand the idea of these wicked Assyrians in Nineveh hearing the message of God's grace. I'm not sure who said it first, but the saying goes, grace begets grace. And here it's the epitome of hypocrisy and pride to think that you can withhold grace from anyone when you have truly received grace from God. I'll put it another way. It's hard to believe that you've genuinely experienced grace, the grace of God, if you refuse to share that grace with others. I titled this Runaway Grace because it's about a prophet who runs away from the God of all grace because he thinks that God has gone overboard. I guess there's a pun intended to that one. Has gone overboard with his grace to people who are undeserving, the Ninevites. But like a runaway train that can't be stopped, God's sovereign grace is unstoppable. Even if a prophet sent by that God of grace becomes a runaway fleeing prophet in an attempt to thwart the message of God's grace getting to the wrong kind of people, Jonah could not stand it that these wicked people would get a chance to repent by God's grace. So this morning, I'm challenging you to consider a few questions for yourself. If I'm like Jonah, what are, or who are, my Ninevites? Who have I written off completely and actually relished the thought of God judging them? Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a whole nation. Maybe it's a type of person. Maybe it's an individual who's hurt you so bad. Who are those Ninevites you cannot see receiving God's grace? And maybe how is it that pride and blindness and my own sin could be keeping me from repenting of my waywardness? Or how do I betray God's grace by keeping that grace to myself and not sharing it with others? In this passage, we first are going to see this prophet running away from God's grace, thinking he can hide and not have to share that grace. Look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He wasn't being told just to go tell them everything's all right. He was told to cry against them because of their wickedness. You have to repent. Jonah had to know 
what are the chances of this wicked nation ever repenting? So I'll go and do what God said and try it out. No, he wouldn't even go that far of crying out against them. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Getting away from the presence of the Lord, that's all he had in mind. But why did he run? We're not told here why he disobeyed God's call. We're told in chapter 4, though, what was going on in Jonah's heart because he shares it. In chapter 4, again, spoiler alert, the people of Nineveh repent. After they repented, he's angry, and God speaks to him. And he replied, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And by the way, you might extend that grace to these people I hate. That's the real motivation of why he refused to go to Nineveh. He couldn't stand grace going to people that he hated. But how is it that he thought he would actually be able to run away from God's presence? Surely he was familiar with the Psalms of David. In Psalm 139, David said, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence if I ascend to heaven? There you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even the uttermost parts of the sea, Jonah, don't you remember? No ship is going to be able to take you far enough from the presence of the Lord. You know, Jonah isn't the only person who has run from God. And I think if we consider it long enough, there are things that God has called us to that we've probably run away from as well. There are things that God's put on our heart or has clearly spelled out in His Word that we said, no, I'm not going to do that. And we want to get away from the Lord we want to run away from him, and it usually looks like us avoiding other Christians because they'd be reminding us of the same things that God has said. And then we start absenting ourselves from worshiping this God because we come under conviction when that happens. So we're not around church or around other believers. We, we think that we can run away from God by running away from his people. How does that work? It only works for so long. And God is going to get our attention. In Jonah, in Jonah's life, he got his direction, his um, attention very quick when he sent a storm. We see in this next section that the storm that God sent for Jonah also had the effect of changing the course of life for these sailors, these mariners. We see in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the sh ship threatened to break up. Where did the storm come from? Coincidence? Chance? Just happened to? No. God himself hurled the storm. God is in control of the storm and the winds, and he's the one that sent it. Now, he sent it for a purpose for Jonah, but look in verse 5. 
It also affected the mariners, and it has a radical change in their lives. It causes a radical change in their lives. Verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they're afraid, and they cried out to their gods, not to the God of heaven and earth, but to their gods. They start to do what they can do. They start to work their wisdom and throw off cargo. That's what they can do. Later on, you can read in verse 9, when Jonah says to them, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, it says, the men were exceedingly afraid. It got worse when they understand that it's not just a bad storm, but the God that Jonah serves is the one that sent that storm, and they were really afraid. Because we have that God's prophet on our boat. And the reason that this is coming is because of him. They're starting to put things together of how powerful this God is. And then later in verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on his on us innocent blood, for O Lord, you have O Lord have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. When they saw the sea go calm, can you imagine what went through their minds? How they were shocked and in awe of the power of this God to calm the sea in an instant. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This, radic- this storm radically changed these pagan sailors so that they came to understand the God of heaven and earth and respect his power and fear him to the point where they were willing to make sacrifices to God with whatever was around and to make vows to this God. What an amazing difference that life-changing storm brought for them. But God didn't just change some sailors. He also changed the life direction of Jonah, his wayward son, by thwarting his plan to run from him. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah knew at this point he was in trouble when he got thrown over board. And I don't know that he saw it as a means of rescue and salvation at the time, but that fish was what was going to keep him alive for three days and three nights. Sent by God. Just as much as that storm was sent by God, God sent that fish. And why did he send the storm? Why did he send the fish to one of his own children? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we read that the Lord disciplines those he loves And he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. He disciplines for us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the key. Are you being trained by the storms that come in your life? Or are you shaking your fist back at God and saying, I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't want anything to do with it. There are many people with good theology that acknowledge, yeah, God is the one that's in control of everything in my life. 
and the bad things that happen, the hard things that happen, the difficulties that I face, they're from God, but I'm just going to be mad at Him for it. I'm just going to get angry. I'm just going to turn into a bitter old person. Instead of being trained by that trial, that suffering. Now, I'm not only saying that God disciplines you for some personal sin that you've done against Him, like was the case for Jonah. And it's often the case for us. But sometimes He brings trials and suffering into our lives simply to cause us to depend on Him more, to cry out to Him, to cling to Him instead of trying our own ways to get out of the jam. You're not going to row the boat out of the jam. There's not enough cargo to throw over to fix this jam. When God works in you through the storms of life, quit depending on your own resources. Cry out to Him. It was His discipline. It was truly God's grace to send this storm in His life. If God would have let Him to continue in His rebellious ways, He wouldn't have been showing grace to Jonah. It's the same intrusive grace that happened when God sent Nathan the prophet to David after he had raped Bathsheba and kind of gotten away with it. Nathan comes and tells him the story of the sheep and the lamb. And he says to Nathan or to David, you are the man. Yeah, that was painful that God sent the prophet to him. But God will relentlessly pursue his miserable children. Because truly we are miserable when we're running away from God. He relentlessly protrudes Uh, pursues us because when we're trapped in our isolation, He draws us out, broken and contrite sinners, back to His embrace. That's where He wants the storms to bring us, to a point where we're laid low, we're broken, and we're ready to cry out to Him. Let me ask you, has God brought a significant storm into your life that's changed the direction of your life? Maybe you're saying, Nathan, I'm in the midst of one of those storms right now. Who are you going to cry out to in that storm? What are you going to use to fix that storm? Are you going to depend on your own resources? Are you going to cry out to the Lord God, of the maker of heaven and earth? As we cry out to Him, we can see His His grace extended to us. He's shaping you and molding you into the image of His Son. He wants you to look more like Christ, and He'll bring into your life those storms and those difficulties Because your holiness is more important than your comfort. He wants you to be righteous and looking like Christ. What does this prophet do when he realizes that he's been rescued and he's in the belly of this fish? We are given in chapter 2, verse 1, the prayer that Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish. I'm sure he didn't have a pad of paper and a pen in the belly of the fish. I'm sure he composed this hymn of praise, this prayer, after he came out. But what a model it is for us to cry out to the Lord in our distress. It says in verse 2, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Good theology, Jonah. You understand it's God who sent this. It was God who brought this storm into your life. Verse 4, he said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. He had hope. He had hope that God would rescue him. God would save him. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, I went down to land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought me up from the life. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He acknowledges that God rescues him, that God saves him from the storm that he brought him into. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the apex of this. That's the conclusion. He recognizes salvation belongs to the Lord. But what are we to make of Jonah's prayer. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, we're told that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Well, I hear Jonah offering up his desire unto God. He's saying, rescue me, help me, save me. I'm in a bad way, God. Come to my aid. That's my desire. Do you agree with that? And God did. God rescued him. So there was plenty thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. He says, you answered me. You brought up my life from the pit. Truly, salvation belongs to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, he prayed. I think there was plenty of offering his desires to God. I think there was plenty of thanksgiving. I just think what was missing in that middle was any real confession of his sin. I don't see his acknowledgement that, God, I ran away from you. I completely ignored you and rebelled and went the opposite direction. High treason is what I'm guilty of. There's no woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. There is no be merciful to me, a sinner. There is no this saying is trustworthy, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Nothing of that sort coming from the lips of Jonah in this prayer. Where's the confession of his sin? Where's the broken and contrite heart? I don't think it's there, and I don't think we'll see, I do believe we'll see in chapters 3 and 4, there isn't a heart of repentance in Jonah. Well, before we get too worked up over what's missing in Jonah's prayer, I think we can sometimes see that we miss a brokenness in our prayers before God. We have our laundry list of all the things that we want, our desires. We may even throw in a few thankful thank yous here and there, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, we are quite often not completely honest with God about our sins. We don't humble ourselves before Him. I think it's a maturing process that God brings us through that we start to understand more and more our sinfulness and more and more His grace to us. But it doesn't happen overnight. It takes storm after storm after storm. It takes prayer after prayer after prayer for us to grow in our dependence on Him. He grows our faith that way. Do you know, this prophet Jonah can say salvation belongs to the Lord. And I think that's good. Those are the words that he should say. And I think we as Christians sometimes walk around and 
rub shoulders with other Christians. I, I know I meet people in uh, counseling conversations, maybe people that I've just met, and they'll tell me that, that Jesus is my Savior. They'll say that I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. But I don't want to be naive and think that I understand that they mean Jesus is their Savior like I mean Jesus is their Savior, that the Bible describes it. So I'll, I'll sometimes ask, well, what's he your Savior from if Jesus is your Savior? And they may dance around and not quite get to the fact that the Bible teaches that we are sinners. And the only hope that we have is in a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our substitute, who died on our, on our behalf so that we could be cleansed from that sin. He is our Savior from sin. We get wrapped up with the blessings, the helps, the way that He saves us from everyday peril, and we can forget that our biggest rescue was from our own sins and our need for Him to be our Savior from our sins and confessing those sins is so crucial. You know, John Newton was a Navy seaman. He was also known as a slave trader for years. He traded slaves on a ship. And even after his conversion, and he stopped the practice of slave trading, it took him a number of years, a few decades before he confessed this sin, eventually ended up helping the abolitionist movement by writing a, a pamphlet about the evils of the slave trade. He wrote many hymns. The famous one you know is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He understood his sinfulness. He confessed that later in his life. You know, there's a, another hymn, though not nearly as popular, that really tells the story of God growing him through times of storm, times of discipline in his life. It's a hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. Maybe Jonah could sing this hymn as well as John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow my, in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with His own hand, He seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all my fair designs, I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Brothers and sisters, I wish there was a shortcut I wish there was an easy button to press for us to grow in our faith, to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. But He intends to use trials and storms, sufferings and difficulties to grow our faith. I think anyone who's known Christ for very long could, could testify to you 
that it's through those times of suffering that we grow. It's through those difficult times that our faith in Christ is strengthened. We don't pray for those difficult, God, send me trouble, send me difficulties. But when those difficulties come, because they do come, see those as God's grace in your life, calling you to greater faith and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, You are the one who hears the prayers of runaways from Your grace. Lord, would You teach us to see our need of Your grace and our need to show grace. Disrupt our wayward ways and block our path when we run from You. Make us thirsty and hungry for Your love when we drink from the poisonous wells of sinful pleasures or when we greedily grasp our own selfish pursuits. Out of our weariness and want, we return to You today. Grant us repentance and the fruit that is in keeping with it. Make us to find our all in You. Lord, would You give us hearts of compassion to bring the message of grace to people just like us who deserve Your wrath and judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.